pray. Father, thank you for this season, this time in your holy word. As we seek to open up this and related passages, we pray that you will open up the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our hearts, that we will love, believe, and receive your holy word. We pray that you would make us even more today as every Sunday, make us every Sunday a more of a church characterized by love for the Lord Jesus Christ and faithfulness to his holy word. We pray for the marriages of Cornerstone Church and the future marriages of Cornerstone Church and ask that they will be such that will bring you glory and honor and blessing and praise and that they will bring great blessing and joy to all who participate in every family. We're asking this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so yes, indeed, this sermon is about divorce. Here's a sermon title, What Does the Bible Say About Divorce? So you might say, Pastor Steve, do we really need a sermon on what does the Bible say about divorce? And why are you preaching this? Well, because it is in the book of Deuteronomy, and in fact, this passage that I just read for you is one of the Old Testament's premier quintessential passages that deal with the subject of marriage and divorce. So we would be remiss if we went through a series in Deuteronomy and never landed in chapter four, the first four verses, never talked about them. Much of what the Lord Jesus says about divorce and the apostle Paul say about it in the New Testament are based upon, are rooted in these words of Deuteronomy 24. So to be faithful to the word of God, I feel like somewhere in this series, and it's today, we must, we must cover these verses and talk about the subject of divorce. We're also talking about it because many of you are married and some of you will be married someday. And you just, you just wait. You will likely someday be tempted to think about the possibility of the D word. I want to prepare you for that moment. I want to set you up biblically for that day so that you'll know how to fight that with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and you remain faithful to the will of God in your marriage. I'm not saying there can never be a divorce. We're going to see there are two reasons given in the Bible why you, why you may legitimately in the sight of God have a divorce. But there are lots of divorces going on in the land that aren't for those two reasons, aren't there? We've had no-fault divorce since the 1960s. What's no-fault mean? Prior to that, you had to say, I want to divorce her because of this fault. And it had to be a fault, man. After that, it's no fault. It could be no reason. Or the reason could be she burned my toast. I don't like the way she puts on her lipstick. It could be anything. I don't like the way he drives. It scares me. I want a divorce. It could be anything. So the divorce is in our land. How much divorce is in our land? I've done some research. I'm not great at this. I'm no expert on this subject. But I think um, the 50% of marriages end in divorce thing is bloated, intentionally bloated. From what I can find out, it's more like 30% of American marriages end in divorce. And then when they say, and you evangelicals are just as bad, I think that's really false. I think that's really untrue from what I've been able to discover if you narrow the group Christians down to evangelical Christians who attend church regularly, in other words, the real ones, the divorce rate is probably 10.5%. So not 50% like you're being led to believe. They want you to believe that. They want to say, see, you Christians are a bunch of phonies. You're a bunch of hypocrites. The gospel doesn't change you at all. Your divorce rate is just as bad as ours. Not true. 
I don't believe it's true anyway. I think among Christians it's 10.5%. But we're covering this because it's in Deuteronomy and it's in our world and it's sometimes in our lives. Some of you have maybe had a divorce. I pray that you'll be the ones amening the most in this sermon and that it might be a difficult time for you. May the Spirit of God give you comfort and uphold you. All right. So what does the Bible say about divorce? Well, we're going to start in the foundational passage, the granddaddy of all marriage and divorce passages, which would be Genesis chapter 2. Let me show you some verses, and we'll talk about them. This is Moses. This is God on marriage. This is God's original intent and design for marriage. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, one that corresponds to him, one that's suitable for him, another human, a female version. Verse 21, so the Lord God took, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God was the first anesthesiologist. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. He was the first surgeon. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Now there's fireworks in these next words. It's Hebrew poetry. The first man becomes a poet. It's exclamatory poetry at the sight of the first woman. Then the man said, this at last. He's seen all the other animals. He's been wondering where there's a number two one for him. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, that's Isha in the Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, that's Ish in the Hebrew. So he's Ish and she's Isha, the feminine ending, the feminine version of one of him. By the way, years ago, we had rabbits, and we named them Ish and Isha, and they were fruitful and multiplied. <laughs> they filled the pen. All right. All right, so... Then we get God's divine commentary on the situation, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... That's healthy for a marriage. Don't have father and mother meddling in your business. You might have to counsel father and mother. You don't get to be in this part. We're one now. We're a new unit. Leave his father and his mother. And now notice these words, because there's a lot in these words. And hold fast to his wife. Now, that doesn't just mean like, come here, baby, let me hold you for a minute. Now, that's talking about your marriage. Hold fast to that woman. That means don't leave her, don't depart from her, don't divorce her, don't separate from her. We're going to see some divorce is allowed. We're going to see that in the Bible. But the basic that God intended from the original is you're going to be together for life, husband and wife in holy matrimony. So leave and cleave is the old word. Hold fast is the one here in the ESV. And they shall become what? One. The two become one. Jesus points back to this in a passage we're going to look at. So you're one flesh, and you're supposed to cleave to each other and hold fast to each other, which means don't leave her, don't leave him, stay together, make the words real when you say in the wedding ceremony, till death do us part. Often I go to weddings and I think, do they really mean that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they should or they shouldn't say it. All right, so what do we notice here? Let's notice a few things. One, it's God who made marriage. 
It's God who made male and female, and it's God who ordained and conceived of the whole idea. They're going to come together and be one. It's going to be called a marriage and so on. It's God who made that up. In other words, it is not, we hear this phrase a lot about all kinds of things these days, marriage is not a mere human social construct, all right? It was not developed long ago in Java Hut number one where Java man got tired of the mess they had. We go out hunting, we come back, we don't know whose kids are whose, we gotta have some way of organizing. We need some law around here, right? We need to you know, make this civil contract and all. It wasn't invented by Java man in Java Hut. It was God who said, here's how this thing works. It's God who made it and therefore it is only God who can regulate it. And when God regulates it, it is well. You let God regulate your marriage, it will be good for you that you may be well in the land and live long. So God made it and God shapes it and God regulates it. And here's what he says about it. It's intended to be one man and one woman. Need I say more? That implies, by the way, that any other thing, any other configuration that is called a marriage is not. It's a mere social construct. People made that up. God didn't. They're not married. It's not a marriage. And furthermore, it is supposed to be for life. Where do we get that? Again, hold fast, or King James, cleave to her. No leaving her, the original intent, pre-fall, no divorce. You two are going to be together for life. So in Genesis chapter 2, we get uh, the, like the foundation passage. We get our feet wet in the sea of what the Bible teaches on marriage and divorce. Now, what's the next chapter we would go to? Well, it's ours, Deuteronomy 24. And we read it in opening, so I won't read the whole thing to you again. But here's the part we really need to refresh our minds with. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Here it is. So when a man takes a wife and marry her, marries her, if, and then there's a series of ifs, if, 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 if this, if this, then that. So that's what he's regulating. If this happens, then that. If, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The word indecency has sexual connotation. Something has gone wrong in the area of fidelity in marriage. Something has gone wrong. There's fornication of some kind. There's impurity of some kind. And he finds that in her. And so he, she finds no favor. And he looks at her and he doesn't say, oh, that's my baby girl. No, he looks at her and goes, says, I can't believe it. And I don't think I can even be with her anymore. I can't trust her anymore. I don't want her anymore. If that happens because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, that was required. Moses said, you've got to write her a certificate. Why? Because that's to protect her reputation. She didn't leave you. You're the one sending her off. You've got to write her this certificate. No more about that. Now, when we get to Matthew 19 and the words of the Lord Jesus, he's going to predicate and root much of what he says in this passage. And we find in this passage, here's where we, what we really need to get out of this. Moses, and so the entire Old Testament, allowed one and only one legitimate cause for a divorce. This was allowed. It was permitted. It was not commanded. You don't have to divorce her. You can keep her. It was not excluded. You may divorce her. You're not forbidden to divorce her. Moses permitted divorce for one and one only cause, for one and one ground only, and that was what's called some indecency. It literally there, the Hebrew means the nakedness of a thing. So it involves something with 
her body and somebody else and so on. You get the idea. It's often rendered some uncleanness. If there's any question about what it means, the Lord Jesus settles that question in Matthew 19 when he refers to this, and he plugs in the Greek word for fornication, porneia, which means there's a list, a range of sexual sins. They're all called porneia. Plug in the one you want. She's guilty of it. And the man said, nah, I can't live with her. That's gone too far. So that's what's going on here. There's one legitimate cause in the entire Old Testament for a divorce. It's if there's been some indecency. It applies here to the woman. It would apply certainly also to the man. Let's be fair, all right? So that was Hebrew law. That's the big takeaway from Deuteronomy 24. Not, she burned my toast. No, porneia, some indecency, something that wasn't right in the realm of human sexuality. Now let's jump, because really the next major teaching passage in the Old Testament on divorce is not found till Malachi chapter two, the last book of our, our Old Testaments. So there's not a lot about this in the Old Testament, but let's go to Malachi chapter two. Now in Malachi chapter two, God's got beef with the people of Israel. Well, that's nothing new. Turn to almost any page in the Old Testament. God's got beef with them. They were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn people. But the particular beef, he's got two of them in Malachi chapter two. And the first one is they've gone after idols again. And, and the second one is they're divorcing their wives without cause, without Deuteronomy 24 cause, without biblical God-honoring cause, without God's permission. So God's got beef with them. By the way, it's almost an aside, but this is how it usually goes. If somebody leaves God, they don't just go into a vacuum and a holy vacuum. Now, if somebody leaves God, they go to idols. Something else takes the place of God. In our day, it's more a belief system. It's a philosophy. It's the world thinking about life and so on. It's a worldview that's shaped by the world and not by the word of God. And when you go there, what happens in your life? Invariably, things result in sexual sins of various kinds and divorces and divorces and divorce. That's where it goes when people leave off God. They don't leave God and remain holy and celibate and righteous. And no, it doesn't work that way. People get worse when they leave God. And that's what we're going to see here in Malachi 2. They're into idolatry. And so guess what? They're into divorcing their wives. Let's look at it. Malachi 2 and verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. He just talked about idolatry. Here's the second thing. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying. Well, who's doing the weeping and who's doing the crying and whose tears are we talking about? I, I believe, I'm with other responsible commentators, believe what this means is your wife who you kicked out of your home unrighteously, has fled to the temple and to the altar, and maybe she's hanging on to the horns of the altar, and she's weeping and she's crying because you sent her packing for no biblical cause, and now she's destitute, and now she's ruined, and now she's destroyed, and now what she's going to do? So your wife is in there in the temple crying at my altar, and it goes on, so he, God, does not regard your offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Let's make it look like this. In the morning, he sends her out packing. She goes to the Lord and cries. Then he comes to the Lord with his offering and says, oh, Lord, I'm here to worship you. I'm a godly man. Receive my offering. God says, I don't want your offering. 
Why not? Look what you just did to your wife. She was just in here crying, and now you want to be offering. Don't be offering. Verse 14, but they're not getting it. Yet you say, for what reason? Why won't you receive my offering? Here we go. Now it gets pretty thunderous. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. I love that phrase. Sometimes I call Debbie, oh, wife of my youth. It's a great phrase. Well, we were 20, man. That's, that's youth. <laughs> the Lord is witnessing now between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. And he uses that word three times. Treacherously, treacherously, treacherously. You're treating that woman badly. Yet, think about who you're treating so badly. Yet, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. How could you treat that woman that way? How could you be like that to her? You made a covenant before God and his witnesses till death do us part, and she is your companion. I'm here to tell you, Debbie is my companion. There's nobody I'd rather be with. You all are nice, but I'll take her if it comes to that. Nobody I'd rather spend time with. I'm never happier than when the two of us are riding the motorcycle. She's right there, and we're talking and looking at things. Oh, man, that makes me happy. It's pretty nice going out to breakfast once in a while, too. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15, and now we get a commentary on Genesis 2. We were just there. It looks back to Genesis 2. But did he not make them one? Yeah, remember that? We just saw it. The two shall become one. That was God's intent, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? Here are some of the purposes for marriage. Why did he make them one? He seeks godly offspring. That's not the only purpose of marriage, but it's a very central one, a very major one. We understand sometimes God does not, to use the phrase, open the womb. Blessings and prayers for those who struggle with that. We get that. But generally speaking, one of the purposes for marriage is he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, to the husbands, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, I'm quoting here out of the New King James. Pastor Steve, why did you put this passage out of the New King James and not the ESV that we're, as a church, generally working out of? Well, because the ESV translates this differently, and I really didn't feel like I was able to dig enough and find out who's right. So there are newer translations that are something wholly different. It's not at all God hates divorce. And I just thought, all right, in my ignorance, I'm going to stick with the tried and the true. I'm going to stick with the King James or the new King James. I'm going to stick with what I've heard forever. And I'm going with, you, you can study it on your own and decide where you land. But I think it just reads, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. What's God's basic disposition to divorce? He hates it. Why does God hate it? Because God hates things that hurt. And divorces always hurt. Is there anybody ever, ever goes through a divorce and it was the most wonderful time of their life? No, everybody gets hurt. The husband goes through a whole lot of pain. The wife goes through a whole lot of hurt. The kids are the ones who really get hurt. They're the real victims, and they are victims. Uh, don't you be deceived. And so God says, I hate seeing everybody get hurt. I'm glad God hates seeing people get hurt. It'd be terrible if God said, I just love seeing you get all ripped up with each other down there. Now, that'd be terrible. 
The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Why? For it covers one's garment with violence. Everybody gets hurt. There's a lot of violence, verbal violence, emotional, psychological violence, sometimes physical violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal third time treacherously, treacherously, treacherously. So what do we learn from this passage? When God's people divorce for reasons other than those he has permitted, God sees that as violence. People are getting hurt. You're treating them with treachery. It's treacherously that you are doing that. And it's only because of human sin. It's only because of the hardness of people's hearts. We'll see that in our next passage, Matthew 19. So what have we seen so far? Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 24, Malachi 2. Now what's next? Matthew chapter 19. Now what we're going to see here is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't cover it. Matthew's coverage of it is the most thorough, and so is my favorite one. So we're going to Matthew 19, and here we get it from the Lord Jesus. Now, don't you believe in the red, red letter nonsense? It's all right to have a Bible with red letters. That can be interesting. Those are the parts of Jesus. Did. But remember, every part's the Word of God. All right? So don't forget that. And so when we go to Jesus now, don't be, oh, finally we get to Jesus. Well, now we'll find out what's really true. No, it's all been true. And when we get to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, it'll be true. It'll be Jesus speaking through Paul. But now we're hearing Jesus speak through his own mouth, all right, when he was here in his days of earthly pilgrimage, Matthew 19. And the Pharisees, verse 3, came up to him and tested him. It's one of their favorite pastimes. Let's go test Jesus. I'm kind of bored. What do you want to do? Let's go test Jesus. So they're out there in their national pastime, and they tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this was one of their pet questions, and this was a big subject of debate in Israel in those days. There were two leading rabbis in two different camps. The first one is named Rabbi Hillel, and he, he taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Back to toast. If she burnt your toast, I write you a certificate of divorce, you're out of here, woman. And then there was Rabbi Shammai, who took a much more restrictive and, frankly, biblical view. He based his view on what's actually in the text of Deuteronomy 24, and he said, no, only for the cause of immorality, only for the cause of fornication. So the Lord Jesus says, um, they ask him, rather, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? Now let's just stop right there. That's a real great, great way to start to answer any question. Have you not read? Wait a minute, let's go to the Bible, Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, for if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So I love that our Savior says, well, wait a minute, let's go to Scripture. Let me open my Bible. Let me take you to the word. Have you not read that he who created them, oh, now we're back in Genesis 2, from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, then he quotes it, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's Jesus' divine commentary on that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Verse 7, then they said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Their assumption seems to be when Moses commanded the whole certificate thing, he's allowing for any kind of divorce. And Jesus replies, verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, and then only for that one cause. That's the only cause for which it's allowed, and, only, and that only because of the hardness of your heart. What does that mean? God recognizes human sinners will sin. And even though his law is clear and strong, it doesn't stop sinners, all sinners, from sinning. And so there are going to be divorces. There are going to be situations. And so God sets out in Deuteronomy 24, let's regulate them and minimize the harm. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. We saw that leave and cleave. Verse 9, Jesus, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here's the exception clause, except except for sexual immorality, that's what Moses said, and marries another, commits adultery. Rabbi Shammai is right. Rabbi Hillel is wrong. So what do we learn from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19? Well, there are many things we could see, but we find out here that the Lord Jesus is absolutely agreeing with what Moses said. Of course, he gave Moses his words. He gave Moses his law. And he's saying divorce is permissible, but for only one cause. And even then, God hates it because somebody always gets hurt. And that's why it's only allowed because of the hardness of fallen, sinful human hearts, which we all have. All right, so what have we seen? Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew, Malachi chapter 2, Matthew chapter 19. We've got one more passage. Are you hanging in there with me? All right, I love to hear that. You're all so nice. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here we have the Bible's longest teaching passage on the subject of marriage and divorce and a new circumstance arises. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Let me remind you what Paul writes are the commandments of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. All right, 1 Corinthians 7, 10. To the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. What does he mean by that? He's saying, this is not revelation God gave to me. This has been revealed previously by Jesus Christ when he was here in the flesh. Go see Matthew 19. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. I'm just reiterating what Jesus already said. The wife should not separate from her husband... But if she does, she should remain unmarried. Notice, the separation is a divorce. If you separate from your husband, you are unmarried. She should remain unmarried, or, here's the other option, be reconciled to her husband. So what does this mean? If because of our fallenness, because of the hardness of our hearts, things just get so bad that Lacking biblical grounds, somebody still utters the D word, and they wind up going into Bel Air to the courthouse and signing documents, and they separate. Not just mean separate. They divorce. That does happen, right? If that happens, then the Lord says, all right, you got two options right now. One is remain single. Because if you remarry and you didn't have a legit reason for breaking the first marriage, then you're going to be committing adultery when you remarry. Don't do that. So remain single. Or, here's option number two, be reconciled to your wife. 
So if you're married, the idea of singleness might not be that appealing to you. Looks like you ought to be reconciled to your wife. All right? So, and, and the husband, he turns it around the other way. I'm thankful for that. And the husband should not divorce her wife. Same idea, but if he does, he has to remain unmarried or be reconciled to his wife. So there, Paul deals with that. That's what the Lord said in Matthew 19. That's what we saw hinted at in Genesis chapter 2. But now here's a whole new situation. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now don't go crazy with that. Paul's not saying, now this part and this next part is not the word of God. This is not from the Lord. This is just my human opinion, and I realize I might be wrong, so you can take it or leave it. No, 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 no. What he's saying is the Lord Jesus, unlike the previous section, the Lord Jesus never taught about this. Matthew 19 doesn't touch on this. This is me, Paul, speaking for the Lord, handpicked by the Lord, given the spirit of revelation by the Lord. This is Paul, a new covenant prophet who has the word of God in his soul and his mouth. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. Now, Scripture never addressed that till this point. So now we have a new circumstance. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And he flips it around. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Let's stop there for a moment. What's going on? In 1 Corinthians, the earlier part, Paul is answering their questions. So you get a, a chapter and it's answering that question. Another two chapters, they're answering that question. And right now he's answering a question that they asked him. We're not told the question, we can surmise it from his answer. And the question is, they asked Paul, Paul, what do I do? Because I've just gotten saved, but my husband has not. So I'm holy set apart to the Lord, he's a child of the devil, he's a pagan, he's not in Christ, he's lost and dead in his trespasses and sins. Can, 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 can I remain with, with him? Or do I need to get away from him? Am I going to contract ceremonial defilement? Like if I hug him or do more things? Is that evil now because I'm in Christ and he's not? Do I need to get away from him somehow? Paul's answering that question. What should we do if we're in a mixed marriage? And Paul says, no, if the unbeliever consents to live with you, don't divorce them. Now he explains why, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband, this is really wild, is made holy because of his wife. I'm going to read that again. For the unbelieving husband is made holy I'm sorry, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What does that mean? He's clearly described as unbelieving. So he's not in Christ. The blood of Christ has not washed away his sins and his trespasses. He doesn't have a new regenerate heart. He's still dead in his trespasses and sins. He's a pagan. And yet it says here, the unbelieving wife or husband is made holy in what sense are they made holy? Here's all holy means in this context. If you give him a big smooch right on the lips, you are not contracting ceremonial defilement. You're doing something that is approved by the Lord. God is okay with you staying with him. God allows you to stay with him. 
It's not like, well, man, I can't stay with him because I'm in demon land or something. No, it's, it's, you, can, you, can, you can stay with him because he's set apart for you to be your husband or your wife um, because of the husband or the wife. Otherwise, Paul argues, now watch this, otherwise your children would be unclean. See, you're arguing, my husband's unclean, I can't stay with him. Paul says, well, if that's true, it's the same, it's also true of your kids. If you can't live with him, you can't live with them. The assumption is your children are not saved. The assumption is your children are not holy by the blood of Christ. But you can live with those kids and you won't contract ceremonial defilement. Are you all following me? Now this, by the way, this is an aside. This really gets into the subject of infant baptism. And our brothers and sisters in Christ who baptize their infants actually believe that those children, or they read this, they're, whole, they're special, they're in a special category, they're not lost, maybe they're not saved, but they're in a holy category and they're more likely to be saved and all that. They're misreading the context. The context doesn't say you have covenant, covenant, covenant children and, and they're already in Christ and so go ahead and baptize them and go ahead and give them pedo communion. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying your, your kids are unsaved like your husband, but it's okay to live with them. Are you following me? Anybody tracking with that? A whole lot of heads did not nod. You want me to repeat it? No, you better nod. All right. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, there's that word again. We're not talking about a separation like we have it. The separation is a divorce, same as Jesus in Matthew 19. Let not man separate what God has joined together. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're not in bondage. You're not a slave to that marriage. You're freed from it, implying you may remarry and you'll be within the bounds of biblical law. God has called you to peace. In other words, you don't have to fight and fight and fight and fight just because you got to save that marriage. Now, if it's an unbeliever and he leaves, maybe let him go. For God has called you to peace. Yeah, but I might be able to lead him to Christ. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what do we see here? Paul brings us a second option, a second circumstance in which divorce is biblically permissible. To date, in the Bible, it has been for fornication and fornication only. Paul says, now here's another situation. If you're married to an unbeliever and they say, I don't like you anymore... You're following Jesus. I don't like your Christ. I don't like your Bible. I don't like your church. I don't like your prayer meetings. I don't like your fellowship. I don't like you going to church and leaving me on Sundays. I don't want you anymore. Then the Bible says you may let that man go. And the implication is, and you may remarry, and you'll be within the will of God. So that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we've done a Bible survey of some of the key passages, Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 2, Matthew, uh, Malachi 2, I keep saying that, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. Now we're going to cover some relevant questions. Here's question number one, an odd one. You want to know more about this? What should I read, Pastor Steve? Let me give you two recommendations. For those of you who are more scholarly, want to read something a little more strong, then I would recommend to you that book, John Murray's um, divorce. It is the classic. It's probably the best in English coverage of this subject biblically ever. 
So I'd recommend that to you, but it's a little hard reading for some people. And so uh, a man named Jay Adams, here's the next book, he took it and made it a more popular, more readable uh, version called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. So you want to read more, read one of those two. I'm saying that because a lot of people say, well, I'm going to research a thing. And they go online and they wind up getting the barber who lives down the street and his thoughts on the subject, and they follow the barber. Don't, don't follow the barber. You want to find who are the world-class scholars on this thing who are evangelical, biblical, orthodox, Christ-honoring. Who's at the top? Let me read the top because they're the best scholar. They're the best thinker on this issue. There they are for you if you want to read more on this. Question number two in closing. That wasn't your cue yet. Question number two. What about no-fault divorce? Well, what about it? We find it to be in fault. <laughs> it's wrong. We don't go by the world. Yeah, but everybody's doing it. And this Bible stuff, that was a long time ago, and it's kind of outdated. No, right is right, though no one's doing it. And wrong is wrong, though everyone's doing it. So if the whole world wants the wrong view on divorce, and maybe they do, we don't, we're not going to go with them, right? We're going to say the word of God to the law and to the testimony. So that's what about no-fault divorce. Let's not be like the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Question number three, you'll think this is a really odd one. Why do women initiate most divorces in our land? They do. Ladies, women initiate, we are told, 80% of divorces in America. It's higher if the woman has a college education and there's a divorce in her family 90% of the times that happens, it's the woman who initiated the divorce. Why? You might say, because men are obviously dolts. <laughs> you might even be on to something. But here's where I'm going to go first in answering that question. Number one, it is, you know, in the waters of feminism. So watch out. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff, even evangelical stuff, that is really at least tinged with feminism. And a whole lot of feminism is your life is about you, baby. Be fulfilled. Do what you want. And if you get a divorce, we will celebrate with you because you've stood on your own two grounds. You don't need that, man. There's a whole lot of that in the water of our culture nowadays, so watch out. But maybe more importantly, and this is more for the men, why do women initiate most divorces in our land? Because women want a relationship, and you're not giving it to her. The best psychologists on the planet, all, and most of them are women, by the way, and they would rather get feminist outcomes to the data, but they all tell us that, no, actually, men are more interested in things and the systems by which those things operate, and women are more interested in people and the systems, meaning relationships, by which those people operate. Men like stuff and systems. Women like people and relationships, on average, more so. So we're told that. And she, gentlemen, she marries you for a relationship. Yes, she needs you, especially in childbearing and raising days, to provide and to protect. She needs that. That's an important part of your duty. But she also needs that done in a context of meaningful, satisfying relationship with her man. Please don't think it, it works like this. Well, I have to date her and court her and romance her, and then once I bag her then all that can end. And now it's just like we're in a working relationship here. You do your part. I'll do my part. I'll get the kids to soccer and so on. No, 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 no. This is when the relationship really takes off. This is when she really wants and needs you to be in her life, 
She wants a relationship. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you husbands dwell with your wives according to understanding. What am I supposed to understand? She wants you. She wants a real relationship with you. She doesn't just want the paycheck and bringing home the bacon. She needs that, but she wants you. A real relationship with you. Some words of encouragement, gentlemen. Never stop dating her. Always keep the romance going. Women love romance. Way more women read than men read. What do women read most? Romance novels. Ask me if my wife, go ahead ask, does my wife read romance? She does. It terrifies me. Like the level of romantic stuff going on in those books is impossible. And now I'm going to be compared to that? <laughs> Women love that stuff. Always keep the romance going. I mean this next thing. Get a sitter. Well, that costs money. Get a sitter. Take her to a nice place for dinner. Not Chick-fil-A. This time it's somewhere nice. <laughs> Take her somewhere nice. Tell her, baby, you know that dress I love you in? You look so Would you wear that dress? And you know how I love it when you pull your hair back there? Would you do your hair with that? And those earrings, you know, would you get those earrings, please? And take her out somewhere nice. You say, but that's expensive. You want to talk about expensive? How about alimony? Child support. Take that woman out. Keep dating her. It's not like fishing. You bag one and now you're done with that fish. Keep fishing for her heart. So why do women initiate most divorce? Here's question number four. What about divorce? This is our last one. What about divorce in cases of domestic violence? This is an important question. It would really be a whole sermon, but let me just give you the major heads I'd want to track on if we're doing this sermon. Number one, the Bible does not specifically address divorce or domestic violence and divorce. There's no chapter, there's no verse, which there was. But there are principles. So here's, here's a principle. Let's start with this one, point number two. What about divorce in domestic violence cases? Let me just say, so beware of marrying an angry man. There are angry men. You might not realize how way more powerful that man is than you are till he shoves you or hits you or something. And you don't want that. Don't marry an angry man. Proverbs 19, 19. A man of great wrath, there are some, will pay the penalty. He's going to get in trouble. And if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again because he is a man of wrath. So if he shoves you once and then says, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. Yeah, I don't believe that. You did it once, you're going to do it again and probably again and again and again and again. Beware of marrying an angry man. Here's my third point about what about divorce in cases of domestic violence. If that man's getting violent with you, get out and get shelter. I say shelter because statistically 75%, we're told, of domestic violent events happen after she gets out. Get out and get somewhere safe. Now this is not what some evangelicals are telling you, and I'm just gonna stand here and differ with them. Some evangelicals 
Some well-known, some pretty good evangelicals are telling you, no, she's to be submissive to her husband. But he's beating her. She's to be submissive to her husband and suffer as unto the Lord. Like slaves and servants are told to suffer as unto the Lord, even if you have a bad master. I'm, I'm just going to part ways with them big time on this issue. And I would just say, get out. And if you've got a friend and you find out she's suffering domestic violence, but for some reason she's staying there, get her out. Furthermore, here's point D or four for you. Report him. <laughs> Report him to your elders, but better yet, dial 911. Report him to the police. That's a Pastor Stanism, by the way. <laughs> Report him to the police, Pastor Stan. Pastor Stan isn't here today because he's got COVID. No, I'm sorry, Jackie has COVID, and they think he might. Dial 911. Tell the pastors. Romans 13, God ordains the law to punish evildoers. Let the law do their job. This man beat me. Don't be like, no, no, it's all my fault. Yeah, he wants you to think that. He keeps telling you that. Don't believe that. Even if it was all your fault, it is never right for that man to lay one hand on you. Don't give him another opportunity. But what about divorce, And Pastor Steve? You said get out. What about divorce? Can a wife divorce her husband in the case of? Well, as I already told you, domestic violence is not given as grounds in the word of God. But, point five, domestic violence will often lead to further circumstances that do themselves provide biblical grounds for divorce. What do I mean? Follow with me. He's violent. She gets out. Sixth commandment, so he doesn't kill her, to preserve her life. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That means take all necessary steps to preserve your own life. Don't let them murder you. Sixth commandment, she gets out. Or if you're her friend, you get her out. She stays out. I'm not going back to that angry man till I have reason to believe he is thoroughly rehabilitated. And that's hard to come by. It's very hard to know that. It's hard to get there and trust that and believe that. So she gets out and she stays out. What does he discover? He's not enjoying celibacy. And either he divorces her and marries another, now she's free, or he fornicates and now she's free. And now she may divorce that man. Or it might go like this. He's a professing believer, and he is taken through steps of biblical church discipline, Matthew 18, for example, and he despises it, and he turns up his nose at it, and ultimately he is declared by the church to be a heathen and a tax collector, the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Ma'am, you are now married to a man that we esteem to be a non-believer. 1 Corinthians 7 applies, but stay out. Don't go back. He'll beat you. He's an unbeliever now who will beat you. Stay out. And she stays out. And again, who departed? Now, it gets a little crunchy right here. Who really departed? Yeah, the man. That's, see, that's where I'm going to go. He forced her out of the house. She didn't want to go. She didn't want to. He's the one who caused her to be out there and him to be over here. He's the one who has departed. A whole lot of biblical Christians would agree with that line of reasoning though not all of them. All right, I got to bring us to some conclusions. So where are they? Number one, let me just say this. Is your marriage struggling? Well, I and we are very sympathetic. 
and we can offer you some help. Can I commend unto you Pastor Stan and Jackie? Not this week, there's COVID in the house. <laughs> they are our church's resident premarital counseling, and the premarital counseling they give is awesome. It is absolutely amazing and awesome. It starts long before, and they work with you and work with you and meet with you and work with you, and then even after you're married, then they meet with you again and then again and then again, and they cover this. It's just world-class, amazing biblical counseling. So hook up with Pastor Stan and Jackie if you're having some problems. They will help you. Second thing in closing, let's just say this. We need Christians, Christian pastors, and Christian churches to stand up, say the truth, and honor what the Word of God teaches about the subject of divorce. It is to be feared that in many, many broadly evangelical churches, nobody's talking about this. People are getting divorces for causes that are not biblical. No, nobody's doing anything about it. All kinds of problems arise because he divorced me, but now he's bringing his girlfriend and it's my church. And he has to leave and I get to stay and all this mess happening in places. We need churches that hold the line. We need churches that go by the word of God. And we need Christians who go by the word of God. Furthermore, let me say in closing, just please don't even allow the D word in your thoughts or in your vocabulary. Just crucify the D word. We're not gonna D unless there's biblical grounds. Instead, we're gonna R, we're gonna reconcile. We're gonna work on, we're gonna fix it. We're gonna make it better. By the grace of God, we're gonna get help. We're gonna acquire the skills that are necessary to make this thing beautiful and lovely and wonderful. We're gonna work individually on acquiring more of the fruit of the spirit. Man, if he has the fruit of the spirit and she has the fruit of the spirit, that's gonna be a pretty nice marriage. Don't even allow the D word in your vocabulary. Work hard. Work hard to be the best husband that glorifies Christ and honors and blesses your wife and kids that you can be. Work hard to be the best wife you can be. And finally, in closing, do it all solely Deo Gloria to the glory of God. I want my marriage, ultimately I want to do this and make it sweet to the glory of God. It's for her good, it's for their good, it's for my blessing and joy, but it's for the glory of God. I want God to be honored by my marriage. I want God to be blessed by my marriage. And so do it to the glory of God. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word and we lift up the marriages of Cornerstone Church and those whose marriages ended for whatever reason in a divorce and they're hurting and this has been a hard sermon for them. We just lift everybody up in our church and pray that you would strengthen the marriages that you would establish and encourage the hearts of those who have suffered, who are in difficult places now. Lord Jesus, you know us all. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even between husbands and wives. We ask for all in the name of Jesus. Amen.